Today's reading is taken from Malachi, chapter 3, verse 13, to chapter 4, verse 6. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly, evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. There will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and will strike the land with total destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Please, thank you very much. Let me have my welcome. My name's uh, Matt Fuller, if we've not met. Uh, and uh, if you are just joining us, then um, we've been working our way through this book of Malachi. Uh, for the last few weeks, and we come to our last section. And it's not the most obvious reading from baptism. You may have spotted that. It's not a bad reading for the second Sunday in Advent, because it does look forward to the return of Jesus Christ. But let me lead us in prayer as we begin to look at this together. Father, thank you for the real honesty that your word has for us. There are tough things that sometimes we don't want to hear, but we're relieved they are here. Help us to understand This prophecy, this promise of the future, clearly we pray. So we respond rightly in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question being asked here is this. What's the point in being a Christian? That's slightly anachronistic. Uh, Here is a prophet speaking in around about 450 BC to uh, Israelites living in Jerusalem. But they are asking the question, what's the point in being a believer in the living God? Why would we bother with that? And so in one sense, I think it's a highly contemporary question. What's the point? You could ask that from the inside, excuse me, from the outside looking in. And and presumably there are some here uh, doing that. They wouldn't call themselves, you wouldn't call yourselves Christians. And you can look at Christians and think, what's the point in being like them? Why would you do that? Sometimes I look at Christians and think, why would you do that? Um, but, so, and, but here in this passage, it's believers, those on the inside, 
looking outside and saying, well, the world seems to be having more fun. What's the point in being a Christian? What's the point in being a believer? Chapter 3, verse 14, the people say, it's futile to serve God. What do we gain from this? Why are we bothering? Uh, For those of a certain vintage, I'd suggest this is um, Billy Joel theology. Uh, Some one or two remember, uh, Only the Good Die Young. I would sing it for you, but Christy's not worked her magic upon me yet. Um, Apparently anyone can sing when she gets hold of them. But uh, the lyrics, they say there's a heaven for those who await. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Sinners are much more fun. You know that only the good die young. You wanted to sing it, didn't you? One or two of you sort of started to get, but that's okay. Only the good die young. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than die with the saints. Why would I, you know, that's the way to live. And that's what they're saying here. Of course, the people here, they're not wondering, is there a God? That assumption, there is one, they would say. But is it worth following him? Now, there are many answers you could give to that question. Is it worthwhile following God? There are loads of answers the Bible would give to that question. Yeah, you, you have a, a, a basis philosophically for truth, for justice, rather than just floating in the air. You have the pleasure of relating to God as a father, the delight of knowing that your sins are forgiven. You don't need to feel guilty. You don't need to pretend. You can be honest with who you are. You have the delight of belonging to a wonderful community where people are genuinely committed to one another. But that's, those are all true. But the answer here is why, why is it worth being a Christian? The answer this passage will give is, is eternity. That's what makes it worthwhile. Look, I'm going to cut through the passage a bit like this. Uh, uh, There's some points on the back of your sheet if you find that helpful. But uh, two groups. So some say it's futile to serve God, verses 13 to 15. Others feared the Lord, and he treasured them, verses 16 to 18. Uh, And then the last section, the day of division will come, chapter 4, 1 to 3. Some say it's futile to serve God. Others feared the Lord, and he treasured them. And then thirdly, the day of division will come. Let's take them in turn then. First, verses 13 to 15, some say it's futile to serve God. So verse 13, you've spoken arrogantly against me. It's got worse if you've been here for the series. They, they, uh, their speech has become increasingly hostile to the Lord. Uh, you ask, what have we said against you? And here's what the people are saying, verse 14. It is futile to serve God. That's a statement. And then here's the question. What do we gain from carrying out his requirements, going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty. To mourn is culture. that's just the most intense way of showing that you're a believer. You sort of rip your clothes, go put ash cloth or ashes on your head. That's a sort of demonstrative way of showing you're a believer at certain times. But what's, in other words, what's the point in being a believer, they say? It's a very revealing question, very modern question. They don't ask is it true that there's a God in, in heaven who loves us? They don't ask, is it true? They say, is it worth it? Does it work? That's very modern. We're in a post-truth world, we're told now. No one cares if any politicians speak the truth or not. Just how does it make us feel? 
That's their question. Is it worth it? What do we gain from mourning? What do we gain from following God's commands? Because verse 15, look, here's three things we observe about the people who aren't believers. Three things, I guess they're simultaneous. Look, the arrogant seem to be blessed. Evildoers seem to prosper. And people even sort of deliberately put God to the test and get away with it. Well, you could say that quite easily in 2016. Why do the right thing when, well, when Philip Green stiffs up a load of employees and thousands have no jobs this Christmas and he just sits on his yacht in the sunshine? I don't think he'll be going without presents this year. Maybe a knighthood, maybe not. A slap on the wrist for him while he gets luxury, while others have lost their jobs and lost their pensions. Well, how's that fair? Why do the right thing? Why do the right thing? How can it be that a man who boasts of groping women gets elected? How can that be? That's complicated. But why do the right thing? When the people who do the wrong thing seem to get all the good stuff. The people say... Now, the two problems with the way they're thinking, let me suggest it here. Uh, the first is, it is just self-serving, that question. What do we gain? Here's the most uh, striking thing I've read on this. Uh, for bel- is a comment, I guess, for the believers of their day. The people in Malachi's day looked like they were serving God. They thought they were serving God. In fact, they were serving themselves. They became angry that God wouldn't serve them too. I think it's an excellent summary. They thought they were serving God. They weren't. They were worshipping themselves. As soon as they didn't get what they want, well, blow this, they thought. And it reveals, so they're self-serving, but it reveals, secondly, it's somewhat flawed thinking. Just because we don't get what we want does not mean that God is uncaring. Every parent knows that. So you bring up children, and uh, there's always uh, every stage of bringing up children, there are new things to discover. Uh, it's fun when they're young, it gets more fun, and then the fun runs out at some point, so I'm told. The, um, uh, but it's fun, and there's sort of whole new levels of excitement, whole new levels of tiredness you experience. So they're, they're young and they don't sleep and there's physical tiredness and you think, oh, when will this end? Uh, and you sort of, oh, sleeping through the night, wonderful, wonderful. And then there's a sort of phase of tantrum tiredness where there's this freaking out over small things and you can't get them to eat anything. You think, this is ridiculous, when will this end? And you get through that. And then eventually you get to emotional tiredness where they just drain upon you emotionally. And it starts, you know, the conversations start sort of fairly low tariff. And as the teenage years arise, they get a bit more intense. But they always go as little something like this. I want to stay up till midnight every day of the week. Not when you're 10, you can't. Why do you hate me? You hate me for not letting me stay up till midnight every day of the week. No, we don't hate you. We think it's best for you to go to bed. If you loved me, other people have parents who love them. And their parents let them stay up till midnight every night. I wish I was in a family that loved me. 
I'm sorry. And of course, you're tempted to say, you're not. Uh, We do love you, but the manifestation of our love is lights off. Now, everyone knows that. That's just, you work that out very early on. And, of course, it's instinctive and it's natural. And yet, when we grow up as adults, we can say to the Lord, if you loved me, you'd give me what I wanted. And he says, I know what you need. And it isn't always what you want. And here the people make that very simple mistake. Just because God doesn't meet your expectations doesn't mean he doesn't love you. Doesn't mean that he can't care for you. He does. But that's what some are saying. Oh, what's the point in being a Christian? The sinners have much more fun. I want to be with them, they say. That's some. Let's move on. Secondly, here's the different group. Verses 16 to 18. Others feared the Lord and he treasured them. Verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and he heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in the presence, his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. Okay, so two things the people get right. They feared the Lord and they talked with one another. Feared here, don't get confused. In Old Testament language, that's just honoured. They honoured, they revered. Perhaps this would be a better way of speaking about it. Um, perhaps as a school child, views the headmaster of his school. He honours him. If he's done something wrong, if he's launched a missile at a teacher, the French teacher who doesn't have great control of the lessons, if he's launched a missile at her, not, you know, a ruler flick or something like that, and the headmaster sees him, then he fears him because something's going to happen. But in the normal scheme of things, he just honours him. Well, that's what the Bible is speaking out. To fear the Lord is to honour him. Oh, if you know you've done wrong, you might feel differently, but in general life, it's to honour him. Revere him, recognize him as worthy. So they fear the Lord and they encourage one another. If you've been here, you'll know the problem in this book, in Malachi's days, they keep telling one another how bad it is to be a believer. They discourage. Here's a group that encourage one another. At verse 16, we're told that the Lord listened and learned. People make a solemn commitment of some kind. They, they sign a scroll of remembrance, whatever it is. They, they write their names on the wall, whatever it may be. But then verse 17, we're looking to the future. And from this point onwards, God is saying, let's look forward. Verse 17, on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. That is a lovely phrase. That God looks down upon people and says, they are my treasured possession. And we all have something of that. Normally it's a person rather than a thing, I guess. Were there a, uh, a fire in the Goodwin household uh, 3 a.m. one morning and um, being an engineer, the, the smoke alarm has batteries in it, unlike the rest of us. And um, uh, the smoke alarm goes off at uh, 3 a.m. in the morning. What would be the treasured possessions as, as Ollie runs around his house? What's he, we'll quickly get some photos because if you can't replace them if they're burned and get the laptop because that sort of has everything on it these days. And, and they run out the house uh, uh, and uh, he and Lizzie exit the house and she says, you seem to be missing something. The most treasured thing. Get the boy. <laughs> Rufus is the most. Of course, that's the thing. Of course, every parent would go and grab their child. 
before anything else. And the Lord says, yeah, my people are my treasured possession that I love. And verse 17, they're twice loved. So the Lord says, I'll spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. Now again, Ollie no doubt automatically loves Rufus because he's his son. He loves him just because of his, the offspring. And yet, if Rufus grows up into a man who honours his parents, who does right by his parents, well, there's a greater sense of appreciation there. Every son, I think, really, wants to hear their father say of them, I'm proud of you. I love you because I love you because you're my child, and I love what you've become. I love the way you live. I love the way you act and raise your family. That's what's being spoken of here, twice loved. So here are two different groups. Subsets futile, futile to serve God. Others feared the Lord, and we're told there's a treasuring. And then from verse 18, well, the, what happens to these two groups becomes very clear. So chapter three, eighteen to chapter 4, verse 3. The day of division will come. Again, we're looking to the future here. Verse 18. God says, You will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Oh, look, there'll be a day in the future when the division of humanity becomes very obvious. Right now, you, you can't really tell the difference between those who serve God and those who don't always not always obvious, but then it will become clear. The day of judgment is coming. Those who feared the Lord will be treasured by him. Those who've rejected God will be rejected. Now that's quite a big statement. Let me try and build up to it, explain it. Let me make three other things to build up to it, three little statements to try and explain why the Bible presents that as a good thing. First is this, look, all of us desire for justice. All of us desire for there to be justice. That's just instinctive to us. The child who is bullied at school longs for it to be sorted out, for justice to come. The, the, the old woman who has a, 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 the widow is robbed of her savings longs for justice to come. That's just instinctive. And wonderfully, you and I live in a country where justice is normally, not always, but normally found. And that's Fantastic. And we take it for granted. And you go elsewhere in the world and you realise that's a wonderful thing. But even in the UK, when you don't get justice, it's painful. We have to wait a long time for it. It hurts. You know, so in the last year, many in the city of Liverpool waiting 27 years for justice and truth to come out after Hillsborough. That was painful, being told that they were to blame. Painful on the front page of newspapers being told feckless individuals caused the death of their family and friends. Painful injustice. So when 27 years later inquiry says that is wrong, they're exonerated, that's a wonderful thing. Now we're fortunate, we, we long for justice and normally in this country it comes, normally. But let me make a second statement to build upon that. Deep down, we desire eternal justice 
it was Winston Churchill put it in blunt terms. He had a good, good, uh, good turn of phrase to one of his cabinet colleagues. He was asked if he believed in God. His response, for me, the evidence that God existed was this. The existence of Lenin and Trotsky for who a hell was needed. That's perhaps counterintuitive. But he said, what I can't bear is men who commit atrocities kill thousands barbarically and then just get to die in comfort with no recrimination, no justice coming for them. I can't bear that. There must be a God who addresses that. And of course, many people would say that to today. Today, it's all very. Robert Mugabe will die in comfort and ease after decades of oppressing people. A Kim Jong Il died after decades of oppressing people in comfort, in luxury. And part of us says, "No, no, I don't want that. That's not right. I need more than that." Or in 2016, as increasing footage and eyewitness evidence comes from places such as Mosul, what do you do if you're a Christian in Mosul and you've seen your children beheaded in front of you by IS because you wouldn't convert? How do you keep going? You need to know that justice is coming. And not all would agree with this, but certainly in my my experience, the only people who really resist the idea of a day of eternal justice are those who've spent their lives in suburban comfort and ease and have never encountered evil in their own lives or in the lives of others. Because the idea that there is no day of justice coming dies in a blood-soaked land. The idea that there's no eternal justice is intolerable when you see your children killed in front of you. And deep down we know that. We long for justice. We want there to be some form of eternal justice. The person who I found most helpful, who I think really turned my head uh, on this, is a, a professor at Yale University in the States, Miroslav Volf. Um, and uh, he puts it in these terms. I'm going to give you a quote. It's quite a long quote, but uh, let me give it to you. You've probably got it on the screen. This is in a, a book he wrote a few years ago. I used to think that wrath, that is God's judgment of the world. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? Well, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. 200,000 were killed, over 3 million displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in, day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. How did God react to the carnage? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness, they were probably a bit unloved by their mothers, that sort of thing. Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? 
Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God is not wrathful in spite of being love. He's wrathful because he is love. Do you see what he's saying? How can you say that God loves this world if the extraordinary wickedness is just greeted with a... You can't. And nor can we. We long for that day in some senses, deep down. Look, we want there to be justice. We want there to be eternal justice. Third little statement, which is the one people really don't like, is that that to a certain extent, we'll all face justice. Now look, God is discriminating in his justice. He's the perfect judge. It's not that Bashar al-Assad gets treated the same way as Bob from Barnet, you know, there is a degree here. The wicked get treated with their due penalty. But yeah, the Bible insists that all of us will one day give an account for our lives. And the division here is between those who feared the Lord, honored the Lord, and those who did not. Now again, I've realized that this is a massive stumbling block for white Westerners. The idea that God will judge us but not for the rest of the world. It's very striking. Uh, It took me a while to clock this, but this is a cultural problem that we have. So you could come here even on a a Friday night as an international cafe, people from all around the globe, and you could speak to uh, someone who say, oh, what do you think about spiritual things? Oh, I'm an atheist. And, you know, I'm an atheist from Asia, East Asia. I'm an atheist from Africa. Okay. If there was a God, do you believe he should judge you? Yes. Absolutely. I'm not sure there is a God, but if there is a God, absolutely he should judge us. Because culturally, that more structured societies, they have no problem with that. It's only us. And I have to say, it's white Westerners who really struggle with this, predominantly. The rest of the world thinks it's fine, normal, appropriate for God to judge. Our resistance to God who judges, it's a cultural thing. It's a product of a self-centered culture that we have. So here's the warning within Malachi 3, 4. If in this life you choose to ignore God and just focus upon yourself, okay, but that endures for eternity. God is saying to us, you are significant. I take you seriously. You can choose hell if you want, and I'll let you go there. But you decide. It's uh, strong metaphors, I guess, that get used for the language of division. So chapter 4, surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. You'll go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. There will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the days when I act. So that's a pretty stark division, isn't it? It's either a furnace or sunshine. Now they're metaphors. They're pictures. For them, culturally, the furnace is just the hottest thing you can get, where you can smelt iron, etc., etc. It's just 
that's just a bad place to, to try and spend time. But, but the point is in verse 1, in eternity, evil's wiped out. Nothing left. Not a branch, not a root. Verse 3, it's just ashes. It's all that's left. There's, there's nothing left of evil, he's saying, in eternity. But by contrast, there is sunshine for the righteous, for those who honour the Lord. It's a nice picture, isn't it? Verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2. The sun of righteousness. Well, on Wednesday mornings I cycled in and it was zero in London. And it was the coldest November day for eight years. It's a bit pathetic, isn't it? You want it to be 108 years or something to be impressive. But... Um, a little reviving winter sun sounds quite appealing. Well, that's the sort of thing he's speaking of here. The sun of righteousness will rise. But a bit more than that, it's just a bit more than a, uh, a week on the beach in Dubai is being spoken of. It's a lovely picture. The, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like a well-fed calf. Now, at first glance, that's probably not the most appealing picture. What do you most want in eternity? I want to frolic like a cow. <laughs> but of course, what the picture is saying is it's life. It's a bit like, you know, a, a well-fed calf who's just let out of a stall, just, you know, bucks and goes crazy. It's like a, like a cow at a rodeo, you know, somewhere, you know, there's life. There's all sorts of vitality there. That's what it's saying. Uh, in eternity, there's all sorts of impressive physical life, healing. I went to the theatre yesterday afternoon. It was terrific. Uh, but uh, lots of high energy sort of show. Lots of people doing backflips and jumping. And I looked on and think, oh, I could do that sort of thing when I was 18. Nowadays, you know, a bit worried. Uh, a bit of, you know, couldn't quite do that anymore. And you think, oh, yeah, but one day... I'll frolic like him again. What are these pictures saying? They're saying eternity heaven, it's a place of life, healing, restoration. And how wonderful to know that. How wonderful to know that when life is distressing, when there is pain. When you're paralyzed, when you're riddled with sickness and there's not long to go in life, how wonderful to know that you will frolic in the new creation. How wonderful. Heaven is a place of life and it's a place of justice too. We will look around in heaven and think, Everything the Lord did was right. There were times on planet Earth when I thought, what am I doing? What's the point? But I'll get to heaven and think, oh, everything was worthwhile. And every decision, every judgment of the Lord, now I can see clearly everything he did was right. And so, really, verses 4 and 5, he says, put your trust in God, specifically Jesus Christ. Oh, look, verse 4, remember the Lord, my servant Moses, you know, obey him. Uh, verse 5, see, I'll send the prophet Elijah to you. Well, the New Testament is absolutely clear that that prophet Elijah come, goes by the name John the Baptist. 
I will send the prophet Elijah, John the Baptist, to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. You'll turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the hearts of the children to their parents. There'll be repentance. It's just saying everyone, everyone can repent. Kids, parents, and everything in between. Everyone can turn back. How do you turn back to the Lord? Well, you trust that this day came in part in 33 AD. That actually God's day of justice, even though it looks like there's only one in the New Old Testament, in the New Testament we realize there's two days. There's the day when Jesus Christ died, and there's the day when Jesus Christ returns. And the way to return to the Lord is to trust that Jesus Christ has died for all that you've done wrong. All of our selfishness, all of our grumbling, all of our complaining. Oh, it's nothing like the wickedness of a Lenin, a Bashar al-Assad. But it is still self-absorbed. It is not a revering of the Lord. And so either we face justice, we face justice in one of those two days. We say Jesus took it for us. Or I'll face it myself. Do you uh, remember, did you pick up this story back in uh, August, um, uh, middle of August, uh, an Emirates plane flying from India to Dubai, uh, they got the landing slightly wrong, in the end it was pilot error, but um, uh, the plane came into land and uh, uh, came in too steeply on the um, runway, <coughs> burst into a fireball, 300 on board, about 18 uh, crew uh, and the rest passengers, uh, and the doors Trapped the, the, the fire instantly, sealed the doors with the heat. They all sw- they couldn't get off. Uh, fire crew came in. It's a desperate rescue attempt. Um, the man who uh, stood out for going back into the plane again and again and again was Jassim Hassan, who uh, we've probably got a picture of, not looking particularly like uh, an Emirati citizen there, but um, uh, obviously a well-travelled firefighter. But um, he went in and he went back. He went back until every single one of the 300 was off. And then he died of the burns that he'd suffered. All 300 survived without any long-term injury. And Jassim Hassan died, rescuing them from that fire, from that furnace. And so I take it now, whenever they see those 300, see a plane come into land, whenever they see a fire truck go by, they think, thank you, Jasim. Well, you read the language of Malachi 4, and the Christian says, yeah, I know that, that Jesus was burnt in a furnace for me. He, my selfishness deserves some judgment. I... I if it, I deserve to carry on rejecting the Lord for eternity, be shut off from him if that's what I've lived for and by in this life. But Jesus has been punished for me. He's gone in the furnace for me. Or in the language of chapter 2, verse 17, even though he was perfect as a son, his father showed him no compassion so that compassion could be shown to me. 
So that's how you return to the Lord. So what do you do with the question, the Billy Joel theology? Oh, why be a believer? <laughs> they have more fun over there. Yeah, look, some will always say it's futile to serve the Lord. Others fear the Lord. You are God's treasured possession. And you might say, yeah, but do you know what, right now? But on that day, when the separation is clear, and some are allowed the desire of this life, just to be shut off from God for eternity, there is no pleasure there. You can see the language. It's, all evil is destroyed. But for those who have feared the Lord, well, the sun of righteousness will rise in healing in its rays. And you will frolic. <laughs> it's a beautiful picture. And it comes if we trust in what Jesus Christ has done, that he's got in the furnace for you and for me. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, here is a sober warning. And here is good news. Father, there is something within all of us that longs for there to be justice, eternal justice. But we want to be on the right side of that. Father, help us to be honest with ourselves. There's selfishness within all of us. So would we trust in Jesus Christ? Turn our hearts back to you. Honour you. And therefore have the great hope of heaven, life, healing. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.